Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Protein podcast. I'm Ryan Catrozine from the University of Ottawa, and this podcast is a recording from the Future of Protein conference we held on campus in October 2018. There's a number of debates about food security and nutrition, agricultural production, and global development, and in many ways, these are all centered around one future essential macronutrient, protein. And so each of the episodes in this podcast series tackles the future protein from a different challenge area. And in today's episode, we tackle ethics and welfare. So many of us have seen documentaries, news coverage, or heard you know these horrific stories about the pain and suffering endured by farm animals as a result of some of the practices in the livestock sector. However, many of these practices have been developed as a way to meet ever-rising demand for animal products. And so one challenge to consider is how to ensure that we address animal welfare in the agri-food system uh, and how this might shape food supply overall. And furthermore, while animal welfare, among other reasons, has resulted in a large push towards various forms of plant-based diets, these shifts in themselves are fraught with some of their own uh, ethical debates. So for instance, there have been growing concerns around how novel proteins or so-called you know, fake meat products, meat alternatives, are produced, how they're modified, how they're processed, and the effects that these might have on people's health, on the environment and society. So the big question here is, what are the ethical concerns we need to consider in the future production and consumption of animal proteins and plant-based proteins? So here are panel experts as they uh, tackle this question. Thanks for listening. So this session is around ethics and welfare. So what are the ethical concerns we need to consider in the future production and consumption of meat and its alternatives, such as plant-based alternatives and other novel proteins? So when Ryan invited me here, I immediately thought, whoa, what's going on? How are we reducing food to protein and how that might be an ethical issue? So I'll let uh, our, our uh, panelists say what they have to say around that. And uh, so we begin in the order of the program. Uh, Tulika Rastogi, I'll present her briefly. Um, it's a long bio. Feel free to cut it short. I think you have it in there. I'll go with the first few sentences. Uh, so Dr. Taliga Rastogi, she leads the Humane Canada Research Program, including the National Shelter Statistics Program and various animal welfare, welfare research projects. So she represents Humane Canada on the Canadian Council on Animal Care and on Nature Canada's Keep Cat, Cats Safe and Save Bird Lives campaign, as well as a number of other multi-stakeholder committees on which she advocates for animals. Um, so maybe we'll, we'll let her, we'll hear her talk. Each speaker has around 10 minutes and then we'll have a, a common discussion uh, afterwards. So, welcome. Okay, thank you, Julie. Um, I first wanted to just say a little bit about Humane Canada, which is the organization I'm from, uh, because maybe a number of you may not be familiar with the organization. So we represent humane societies and SPCAs across Canada, and uh, we were formed about um, 
61 years ago, uh, actually on the issue of advocating for farm animal legislation in Canada, uh, as well as their protection. And so we're, uh, as a result of our mandate to advocate for the welfare of farm animals and uh, for legal protections in the area of national jurisdiction, including transportation and slaughter, uh, we're sitting on um, committees that are uh, helping to advance or trying to push for uh, improvements to animal welfare in standard farming practices in this country. So uh, animal welfare and humane um, considerations are really the, uh, the mandate of our organization. But uh, when looking at the topic for today's uh, and for today and tomorrow's discussions, um, and contemplating how to respond today, or how to make the best use of my 10 minutes, which I'm <laughs> sure it's going to be a challenge. Um, I was initially just looking at the question, what are the ethical concerns we need to consider in the future production and consumption of meat and its alternatives, such as plant-based alternatives and novel proteins? And I too had a reaction to the word protein versus um, uh, other words, such as meat or meat alternatives or um, protein um, being a micronutrient and not necessarily a food. <laughs> um, but in contemplating these questions, uh, I thought I would come at it from just a, a broader perspective uh, and a personal perspective, I guess. So when I start to consider what are the concerns uh, from an ethical perspective, I come at it from the perspective of what are the uh, choices that we have that we can make uh, on the basis of causing the least amount of harm, minimizing harm, or non-harm, actually. And that comes from really a practice of developing respect and compassion for other beings. So in this way, the suffering of animals and humans is really foundational for me in addressing the ethical concerns um, on this question. So I'll start off actually thinking about three different broad areas that uh, impact on the harm of other beings. So first of all, health. Health is something that I've broken down here as you know, the health of the individual who's eating, the health of the food itself, the health of the community surrounding that food production system or the individuals in the society, uh, and the health of the planet. And really that's a bit of a, a one health concept if you're familiar with that. The idea that the health of our, um, of our animals, of people, and of uh, the environment are key to uh, a healthy society, healthy environment. Uh, as well, there is a one welfare concept, which is um, very parallel. The concept that our biodiversity and animal welfare and environment all contribute to human well-being. And so from that perspective, um, looking first at uh, the person eating, the eater, and the health of, of that individual who's consuming the food, this is uh, something that we just talked about in the previous session, and I guess maybe there wasn't a concrete uh, um, conclusion that was um, a consensus conclusion from that, but uh, from my perspective, I was reflecting on the fact that um, 
animal-based foods are often, um, or perhaps I'll flip it, plant-based foods are often promoted in um, uh, health outputs that are positive, such as reducing uh, risk of heart disease and blood pressure, obesity, mortality, and we heard uh, some aspects uh, of that discussed earlier in the last session. Uh, so there's certainly evidence that uh, plant-based uh, foods and diets can contribute to individual health. There's also the health uh, impacts of intensive agriculture systems and uh, many, many different aspects thereof, but when we think about animal agriculture, there's certainly zoonotic diseases, there's even just basic sanitation issues um, with regard to processing and, um, and ra raising animals and processing them to, to become products uh, for our consumption. It's also an ethical issue to consider that the food available to individuals should satisfy their basic human right to adequate uh, food that provides for their health and um, cultural values and, uh, and their needs. So there's, um, that's under the UN Declaration of Human Rights, that it's an, it's, um, an aspect of welfare that maybe we don't uh, think about, although uh, was raised in the first session this morning, which was great. So moving to the food itself, when the food is actually a sentient being, then I think there's an ethical choice to be considered as to whether we are causing the death of that being or causing its poor welfare, and whether there are ethical decisions that we can make by choosing animals um, less often that are produced through the slaughter or their keeping in conditions that affect their, their well-being. And so we haven't really gotten into aspects of animal welfare in the discussion so far today. So even though some of you may know it, I think it's important to just um, to bring to mind some of what these issues are. And inhumane farming practices um, are really, uh, as much as we're trying to improve, the current intensive agriculture system for animal agriculture that we have is, is replete with them. So, for example, just the basis of keeping animals in intensive confinement housing so that they can't move naturally, express natural behaviors, have the freedom to interact socially with their conspecifics, um, to get away from the effects of their environment that can be magnified by the, the very conditions that they're kept in, um, as well as uh, other uh, you know, other aspects of freedom, the, the freedom to be there as in, you know, participate in that. Um, that is something that uh, exists for all of um, the animals that are kept in intens intensive agriculture systems. And I wanted to mention specifically uh, chickens, and I wanted to mention aqu aquaculture fish, because there was some discussion earlier today that perhaps um, some of those choices may be better for, for certain reasons, but the intensive confinement um, and some of the in intense environmental impacts uh, for their, for themselves, exists in, the, in those conditions. Perhaps some um, pasture-raised um, beef cattle may not be in uh, the same kind of conditions most of the time. They, they may have more freedom. But secondly, there are also painful practices that are also practiced um, uh, as a matter of course in intensive agriculture. Things like dehorning of cattle and beak trimming of chickens, and sometimes these are performed without adequate pain relief. Not that there aren't um, requirements to do so, but 
you know, these are harmful practices of removing parts of the body. And uh, essentially it's done in order to facilitate the work of producers who are trying to manage the animals in a more efficient way. Two minutes, really? Okay. <laughs> so um, without going into a, a great deal of detail, let me just say there's also impacts on these individuals from being kept from sleeping or resting in order to produce fast growth, in order, uh, you know, animals being kept hungry and unhealthy in order to improve the quality of the meat product that is um, at the end of the day coming to the, um, the consumer. Uh, and above this, even genetic varieties being bred in order to specifically advance production qualities at the expense of uh, animal welfare. So the entire system is, is being driven uh, in order to create uh, a product and to really put aside um, or not consider as well those welfare considerations. On the community side, I simply wanted to mention here, it's not a simple issue at all, uh, individuals who are working in this system may be dealing, you know, if we talk about um, producers um, who are engaged in, um, in uh, managing animals intensively, uh, people working in meat processing plants and, and producing or uh, engaged in slaughter activities deal with psychological trauma of having to kill these animals, um, many, many, many of them. But also, they're dealing with personal um, issues of uh, high injury rates, uh, work, workplace safety concerns because of the high speeds at which they're um, engaged in their work. They're not necessarily paid very well for this work. Often, temporary migrant workers are being employed in this area because um, uh, it's, it's work that many people would choose not to do and maybe not even to know about. And on the planet side, uh, of course, we're going to have a session on climate change, but I think climate change and land use are the predominant issues. So agricult the agriculture sector is the second largest uh, emitter of greenhouse gas emissions, as we all know, after the energy sector. Um, and of course, the use of land specifically for crop production um, is something we could do if we're going to consume those um, crops directly, but instead if we choose to uh, use land for um, raising animals, growing them, pasturing them, which arguably may have some benefits but depends on the scale, um, we're using additional energy to move those animals around and then to slaughter them. Um, it's, uh, it begs the question of what is the most efficient and ethical use of that space. We have many, I had many, many other points, but I will respect the time and perhaps um, address some of those other points in, uh, in the questions. So thank you. All right, thank you very much. If I may add one sentence to that, maybe food, plants are also sentient beings. I'm here, thank you. Okay, uh, I said it, it's been said. Okay, uh, now I'd like to welcome uh, Professor uh, Andrew Fenton, Assistant Professor in the Department of Philosophy at Dalhousie University. He's been an active member of the NTE Impact Ethics. Hopefully I'll figure out how to do the clicker. I've never used a clicker before. Oh, okay, right there. Hi everybody, thanks again for the organizers for putting us together, Sir Ryan and Shannon in particular. Thanks very much for all of your efforts. So um, 
I don't see my slides up yet. I, I guess around the way. So I'll give give you a, a, a preamble. So I'm going to be uh, foregrounding my considerations or situating them in concerns about welfare. There are different ways to do animal health, ethics than welfare orientation. So this is going to reflect uh, my work in bioethics. I work in both research uh, eth uh, bioethics, uh, human and animal, as well as uh, animal and human bioethics. Uh, so we'll see if, it, if they appear. That is not one of my slides. Um, so the embrace of the uh, ecological scene is good. Oh, good. Great. Should I stop my timer? I guess so. Oh, that's me. That's definitely me. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, sure. Well, I should be. I, st I should be fine. Um, I think. God, I'm going to be held. I have to hold myself accountable here. Uh, okay, so that's that's me. And so I'm going to bring I'm going to bring research uh, ethics, uh, animal research ethics, so a bit of the CCAC uh, into interactions with discussions today. Here's here's another piece of the preamble. One of the things I really worry about, and it's uh, it's not just me, is the way that we clump and split in ethics. Um, so we tend to clump human and non-human. That's really bad clumping. Um, not least of which is it's arbitrary um, and, of course, drips of self-interest. And so there's, you know, conflicts of interest uh, dripping in this area or floating in the air in this area, and it should worry us when we have that in, in play. But that kind, of, that kind of clumping and splitting is a real worry. Um, another another uh, uh, splitting that I worry about is agricultural ethics versus research ethics, versus zoo ethics, ethics versus companion animal ethics. Those are commonly split and work within sometimes very different ethical frameworks. And it doesn't come down to differences of specificity, which is a fancy philosophical way of saying it doesn't come down to them all sharing fundamental principles and then the details differ, differ because of the domain of use. That's not what's going on. So let me walk you through uh, uh, animal research ethics. So here's uh, a cover of one of the editions of William Russell and Rex Burst's The Principles of Humane Experimental Technique. This is where you find the three R's if you know anything about animal research uh, ethics. This is the um, replacement, reduction, and refinement. Replacement comes in two forms, relative and absolute, for Russell and Birch. Uh, Russell and Birch were only focused in on vertebrates in their book. They are only concerned with sentient uh, animals and vertebrates with the best case for them at the time, though they recognize some cephalopods in their book just didn't include them. But replacement has to do with replacing animals, sentient animals, with non-sentient models. That can be relative, and that can include uh, pithed frogs, or non-survival experiments, or sorry, non-recover experiments, where you have an animal that's under anesthesia and they will never be conscious again, right? Versus the absolute replacement, which is replacing sentient animals uh, entirely. Reduction comes in two forms in Russell and Birch. One is just simply the reduction of numbers in any given experiment. And the other is reducing to the absolute statistical minimum to actually get yielded results. I mean, those two things are in play in contemporary animal research ethics. Both of them are actually in their book. Refinement has to do with welfare. So this is where welfare comes in. But um, uh, that, that's going to be placed in a certain way first. So it's going to be out of order to what they're, what they're um, actually talking about themselves. My apologies to the ghosts of... Russell and Birch, but we'll get to replacement in the end. They don't defend an ethical framework. This book is not about ethics. It's about humane experimental technique. And what they mean by humaneness is our humanity. 
They make it explicit, this is not about ethics. But there is a principle that'll actually work here, and that's it. Very simple principle, it actually echoes around a number of moral theories. So if you have two or more choices of action to achieve a particular goal, and one choice actually causes less harm than any other, you should choose the one that causes less harm. That's the principle that will actually yield uh, replacement reduction and refinement. So harm, let's figure out what harm means in this context. It's gonna be antithetical to welfare. Think of harm in, in these kinds of classes. So you get pain, stress, and distress. This is the language that people like Russell and Birch uh, used in their book. Uh, unless we're talking about therapeutic or veterinary causes of harm, if they actually have no benefit to the individual harmed, that's antithetical to their welfare. Their welfare takes a hit in that kind of context. Uh, this principle will actually work in agriculture, so there's no reason to split this principle. Uh, it's, a, it's a principle that will actually it can govern both. So if you have two or more choices of action to achieve a given end and one choice causes less harm, that's the one you should do. Right? This is very weird implications in agriculture, as I, I hope I'll show. But this actually then quickly intersects with tr rather traditional conversations of de-beaking and de-horning were actually briefly mentioned. These are, these are very traditional ways of actually uh, engaging animal agriculture, even though, as Talika said, farming's complicated. I mean, this often comes out of industrial farming rather than extensive farming. Uh, here's some ways of actually approaching uh, uh, welfare within this context. Uh, all of these are in play. Some folks, particularly veterinarians, will lean towards things like healthy life and long life. But if, as a number of you know in your human bioethics, there's worse things than, than uh, death. And some long lives are not worth living. It's the quality of life, not, not the length of life that matters. Productivity, of course, will have a hit uh, or relevance. Uh, in agriculture, the reduction or elimination of physiological markers of stress, that's going to scope over agriculture and uh, research. Enriched life, this is one that industrial farming fails on, right? You're talking about physical enrichment and social enrichment, right? That's, that's just enrichment 101 within animal research ethics. Uh, it should be enrichment 101 in agricultural ethics, but it's not a life worth living. Right. There's, there's one that animal researchers are taking much more seriously uh, and one that, um, uh, again, spreads over domains of use. A combination can actually uh, work here. So five freedoms. Here's a, this is an example of, there's the list of the five freedoms there from the SPCA. Uh, this is an example of a welfare-based uh, ethic in agriculture. Uh, here's a little bit of its history. So it's uh, that, that formulation of... Uh, the five freedoms is found in the UK's Farm Animal Welfare Council um, report in 79. It has a precursor in the Bramble report. It's just not as, as not as developed in the Bramble report. The 3R framework, this sort of talk about five freedoms falls under refinement, nothing else. Well, what does that show? As a number of animal researchers are well aware, and trust me, it actually makes them quite angry and frustrated that this is the case given the, the way animal research gets talked about, is they're under a greater moral burden than animal agriculturalists. Because you'll notice that there's not the same pressure on reduction and replacement. And you've been seeing it enacted in the sessions today, right? Reduction and replacement gets discussed, but it doesn't have the same cachet, it doesn't have the same weight as in animal research. And that's because the ethical burden is different, but not for good reasons, right? Um, and so 
um, what, the, what the three R's is doing in animal research, the importance of it is it is really the least that they can do for their animals. Again, this is a welfare discussion. If we were talking about animal ethics writ large, we move beyond welfare. But uh, the animal scientists I talk to and know and engage with, I, as I assure them uh, when I talk to them, this is the least they can do. It's not the most they can do. Uh, but even this least is not in play in agricultural ethics. And that's a problem. Uh, so here's, here's a number of ways to start leveling the burdens, that is the ethical burdens of those working in these different domains of use. Um, one is to talk about reducing meat and dairy intake, that is uh, consumption. There's going to be problems to doing this in agriculture. Unlike in, in research ethics, there's a couple of things that will actually be really important in shaping their ethic. It's the outcome is going to shape it. They're either trying to model a pathology or a condition, or they're trying to actually model an intervention. And so they can do their replacement reduction and refinement around those outcomes. Because farming is a growth industry, that's really hard. Right? Because the outcome is to actually meet market need. We need to re-envision animal agriculture to actually start to move in this direction of bringing back together frameworks that are irrationally apart. And one of the ways to do this is to re-see the outcomes of animal agriculture. It has to do with need. And it has to do with eliminating uh, negative states like starvation and hunger. Right? Once we do that, then we can start bringing in uh, reduction and uh, replacement. We do need to deal with food loss, waste, and surplus loss happening in the food production cycle, waste at the, the retail section and consumer, uh, consumer context, and then surplus. If you haven't been noticing some of the news about the milk dumps in the, the United States recently, that's, that's an example of milk that didn't need to be produced. That would be unconscionable use of animals in research, right? Reduction, uh, then you can actually uh, try and get more out of any one animal. You see this happen in animal research to the ill welfare of the animals being used. You can see this in agriculture as we have artificially selected dairy cows to produce more and more milk. So, okay, so associated with things like lameness, mastitis. Oh, there's mine, there's me, me now misbehaving. So let me actually go through this very uh, quickly um, to try and actually get, I can't stop that. It's very bad. Okay, there it stopped. Uh, so replacement, we can actually start talking about um, these kinds of discussions. This is where it takes you weirdly in, in welfare discussions. If you take this very seriously as we move from animal welfare and research ethics to agricultural ethics, we can talk about welfare enhancing agricultural animals, reducing their pain capacity, reducing their sentience capacity, going for edible insects, which can be intensified in use without the same kinds of harm profiles that you will see in intensifying uh, mammals. Right? And so here's some of the, the conclusions. Um, we need a way to actually reframe uh, animal uh, agricultural ethics to actually reflect less splitting and more clumping. Uh, reduction can play a part here. Refinement can play a part here. Replacement always had the priority in the three R's. If you can do it without animals, you should. And that has to do with harm, again, welfare. And so again, this is the kind of uh, reorientation that's needed within agricultural ethics. Replacement first, reduction, and then refinement. So the five freedoms comes last, not first. And that's it. Thank you. Did I hear correctly that the replacement is with the non-sentient assumed to be the plants? 
Is that... uh, no, no, you could no. actually do, you could do non-sentient in terms of uh, um, reducing the sentience of an, I mean, for mammals, stopping their neural tube from folding, so they're anencephalic. Okay. That would, okay. That would do it. Okay, a discussion itself. Okay, uh, so uh, now I'll welcome a uh, second philosopher we have on the panel, uh, Dr. Bruckner, who's Associate Professor in Philosophy at Penn State University, New Kensington. Uh, his research publications are mainly in ethics and focus on a variety of theoretical and applied issues, especially human well-being in animal and food ethics. I think this is relevant. He and his wife live on a small Pennsylvania farm where they raise vegetables and livestock, hunt deer, and collect roadkill for consumption. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you to the organizers. I've, I'm, I'm having a great time. It's, um, I've never been in a room with so many people who knew so much about food from different disciplinary perspective. It's been a real treat. Um, my presentation is going to have some obvious um, ties to uh, what Talika just told us about and what Andrew just told about, and it's titled Dietary Choice and the Skeptic's Challenge. And it's about the need to answer a certain kind of moral skeptic. The skeptic challenges the usual moral argument against certain diet, dietary choices and in favor of others. And this usual argument that I have in mind appeals to what we can call the harm footprint of our individual dietary choices. So think of the harm footprint of a diet as including three sorts of harm. Harm to animals, harm to the environment, and harm to humans. The harm footprint of a diet, including animal products, the usual argument begins, is much higher than the harm footprint of a diet that doesn't include animal products. To name but a few animal harms, repeating some of what Talika mentioned. Farm animals suffer painful mutilation from castration, dehorning, tail docking, and other procedures without anesthesia. They're forced to live in cramped quarters that prevent them from engaging in natural behaviors, such as rooting for pigs and even spreading their wings for laying hens in battery cages. They suffer rough handling, broken bones, and dehydration on the way to slaughter and they're killed, which harms them. On the environmental side, turning into environmental harms, growing crops to feed animals whom we then eat is an incredibly inefficient way to produce food in comparison to growing plants directly for human consumption. And this results in harm to the environment for the vast waste of land, water, and fossil fuel. Fertilizers and manure harm the environment by polluting. Ruminants pollute by producing a large volume of greenhouse gas. And finally, humans are harmed by animal agriculture due to harm to the environment, as well as the increased risk of certain diseases from overconsumption of some animal products. They're also harmed in dangerous farm and slaughterhouse work. Most of this harm, all of this harm, um, that this usual argument rehearses, uh, most of this harm is unnecessary. For consuming protein from other sources, including plants, clean meat, and insects, is a viable and less harmful alternative. So the usual argument concludes by claiming that this massive, unnecessary harm footprint of producing and consuming animal products, it concludes that 
that massive and unnecessary harm footprint implies that consuming animal products is impermissible. That's the target of the skeptic's challenge. But just to get clear on the, on the form of the harm footprint argument, the general logic is this. Suppose we have a practice that produces massive harm to animals, the environment, and humans. And suppose that the harm that comes from this practice is unnecessary in the sense that there's another practice available, which is a suitable alternative to the first practice and produces less total harm. Then the harm footprint argument concludes that participation in or support of the first practice is morally impermissible. So here's the skeptic's challenge to this usual harm footprint argument. The skeptic's challenge is that this reasoning proves far too much. If it's wrong to produce harm when other less harmful options are available, then it's wrong, for instance, to engage in, in any inessential travel that burns fossil fuel for the harm to animals, humans, and the environment from greenhouse gas emissions. Travel to this conference would be wrong. Because we, have exchanged, because we could have exchanged these ideas in an online video conference, that's the alternative practice, that's a suitable, suitable alternative. But we're all here, so presumably we don't think it's wrong. The skeptic continues, if harm minimization reasoning is good, then keeping pets is wrong. There are so many dogs and cats in the US, as a matter of fact, that they consume 25% of all of the products of animal agriculture that are produced in the US. And even if these pets were fed a vegan diet, producing crops to feed pets still causes massive harm. It causes harm to the environment by using land, water, fertilizer, and fossil fuel. It causes harm to field animals by killing or maiming the field animals in the process of field operations for cropping. For similar reasons, if harm minimization reasoning is good, then drinking alcohol is wrong. Plant agriculture needed to produce alcohol takes up about 54 million acres worldwide. It, harm, it harms field animals in crop cultivation, again, uses fossil fuels and pollutes with pesticides and fertilizers. And there are, are alternative beverages that are less harmful. So again, the harm footprint argument implies that producing and consuming alcohol is wrong. Again, the skeptic continues, if the harm minimization reasoning is good, then even procreation is wrong. The more humans there are, the more harm is visited upon animals, the environment, and humans due to human activities. It's unnecessary for any given individual to procreate, as there are plenty, in, uh, plenty of other less harmful things one can do with one's life than to raise children, and the human race will survive without any given individual uh, contributing another human through procreation. Thus, procreation is a practice that's unnecessary for any in given individual. It's massively harmful to animals, the environment, and humans. And it follows by harm minimization reasoning that engaging in that practice is morally impermissible. Okay, let's take stock. So I rehearsed the usual harm-based argument against the products of animal agriculture and in favor of alternative protein sources. And we just considered the skeptic's response to this reasoning, which is that if harm minimization reasoning is good, then it follows that a vast array of common lifestyle practices is wrong. Since we don't think these practices are wrong, there must be something wrong with the usual harm minimization argument. 
I think the skeptic is right that the usual argument against consumption of certain protein products is defective because it proves too much. Although the harm of our actions does seem to be relevant to the moral status of those actions, the faulty assumption of the harm footprint argument, this usual argument, seems to be that harm ought to be minimized. So what if we relax that assumption and assume instead that an individual's harm footprint should be kept within some budget, under some threshold, not go over some level? So let's entertain that assumption that it's not harm minimization, but staying under some budget that morality requires. With that assumption, and remembering the many harm-producing elements of our lifestyles that I noted, the strength of the case for abstaining from producing and consuming harmful animal products is considerably weakened. There are so many ways of producing or reducing harm that abstinence from certain harmful protein products loses the spotlight. So consider a conscientious omnivore who has children and pets, but who works for a social services agency providing family planning and contraception. She's got a pretty low harm footprint due to her occupation. And she probably has a lower harm footprint than a vegan with children, but whose occupation as an accountant say, while not causing any harm, certainly doesn't reduce or prevent much harm. Consider another comparison. Global warming is a dire problem, and a massive volume of greenhouse gas is emitted from jet engines. Depending on the details and all else equal, a vegan who takes more than one intercontinental round-trip flight each year may have a higher harm footprint than a very conscious, um, conscientious omnivore who travels only locally through low-carbon means. And depending on the details, all of these individuals may be living permissibly under the maximum harm footprint allowed by morality. If one's goal is to keep one's harm footprint under budget, it seems that one can do better than to focus exclusively on production and consumption, uh, food production and consumption decisions. Summary. So our attempt, our attempt to respond to the skeptic's original argument against harm minimization reasoning has reached another skeptical conclusion. Despite the current intense interest in the morality of agricultural and dietary practices, there may be nothing morally special about them in comparison to other life choices. The harms and benefits of dietary choices are among all of the harms and benefits that should be considered in connection with the overall impact of one's activities on animals, the environment, and humans. And there are very good reasons to abstain from producing and consuming certain protein products. It's just that these reasons are no stronger than the parallel reasons to abstain from other harmful aspects of our modern lifestyles. Thank you. All right, thank you very much. And uh, for our final speaker, and then we'll open up the room for discussion, we have Tovar Cerulli author of The Mindful Carnivore, which has earned praise from hunters, ecologists, and vegetarians alike. He's also the director with the social change communication firm, Metropolitan Group, and has a PhD in communication from the University of Massachusetts, Amherst.
Thank you. <clears throat> what are the ethical concerns we need to consider in the future production and consumption of meat and its alternatives? If I had been asked a question like this 20 years ago, my responses would have been shaped primarily by the fact that I was a vegan who saw meat eating as deeply misguided. Today, my responses, which you'll find soon are mostly questions, are still partly shaped by my decade as a strict vegetarian. My responses are also shaped by the fact that I am now a hunter and that for most of the past decade, my freezer has been well stocked with venison. So I stand here with a foot in each of these two worlds. And these worlds have informed my efforts to foster insight and collaboration among different ways of understanding our relationships with animals and with the larger natural world. And they inform my current work with Metropolitan Group, helping organizations in the overlapping fields of environmental conservation, public health, and social justice to communicate strategically and build public will. When I reflect on the ethical concerns we need to consider in the future production and consumption of these foods, my first instinct is to say, well, we should consider all of them. <laughs> and those I'm about to suggest do not by any stretch of the imagination constitute a complete list. And many have already been suggested in earlier panels and by the previous speakers here. How I break them down will sound very familiar. One set of concerns is linked to questions about human well-being, human welfare, and relationships among us. How might we shape a future, for example, in which our predominant food systems support good nutrition, public health, and social justice? A future in which we honor diverse cultures, diverse diets, and diverse local food systems. A second set of concerns is linked to questions about the welfare of other animals and our relationships with them. How might we shape a future in which our predominant food systems treat other sentient beings with respect? A future in which our primary protein sources are not rooted in their suffering. A third set of concerns is linked to questions about ecological well-being. How might we shape a future in which our food systems support planetary health? A future in which our eating is compatible with the integrity of ecosystems? How, in short, might we shape a future in which our food systems contribute to the well-being of all? A future in which our eating supports good relationships with each other, with other animals, and with the larger-than-human natural world. In this forum and others, it is my hope that we can together think about these not as separate specific concerns, but rather as an interconnected web of concerns. It is my hope that we can together recognize that we are exploring not only technical and material questions about the food we produce, how we produce it, and how we consume it. It's my hope that we can together also explore questions about how we think 
and feel and relate. And indeed, I think we've already begun some of that exploration here today. Most broadly, it is my hope that we can together consider what values and relationships our food, system, food systems and our eating honor. So today and into the future, it's my hope that we can together ask, is our eating guided by an ethic of respect for each other, other animals, and the larger natural world? Are our food systems rooted in humility or arrogance, in compassion or callousness? From small farms to industrial scale operations, from insects to soybeans, from hunting deer in boreal forests to culturing cells in laboratories, what values and relationships do our ways of procuring food express? What values and relationships do they reinforce and create? Do our approaches to food connect us or alienate us? What are the implications for all of us, humans, other animals, and the larger natural world? Let's assume, for example, that laboratory meat has significant benefits in terms of animal welfare, ecological footprint, and even human health. It's my hope that we can together ask what other implications it might have in terms of values and relationships. Might sourcing protein from laboratories remove us even farther from a sense of belonging to the natural world? A world of air, soil, and water, of leafy plants and living, breathing things? Or are most of us already so disconnected from that that this step would make little difference? What might it mean to dispel the quandary that human omnivores have faced for millennia, the moral difficulty inherent in taking an animal's life? Might lab meat provide a welcome resolution to that difficulty? Or might it contribute to a growing forgetfulness about the fact that other animals are, like us, more than mere flesh? I think here of words penned by the late ecofeminist philosopher Val Plumwood. She wrote that she was a vegetarian at the time, not because she considered predation, quote, demonic and impure, but because she objected, quote, to the reduction of animal lives in factory farming systems that treat them as living meat. Reflecting on her own experience of being attacked by a crocodile, she had come to the conclusion that, quote, not just humans, but any creature can make the same claim to be more than just food. We are edible, she wrote, but we are also much more than edible. Respectful, ecological eating must recognize both of these things. Her words speak to me, both as a one-time vegetarian who sought respectful ecological eating and as a hunter who seeks the same. So it is with her words and these values in mind that I ask us to consider the future of food. It is with her words and these values in mind that I ask us to consider meat and other foods, other proteins, not only in terms of production and consumption, but also in terms of relationship. It is with her words and these values in mind that I ask us together to consider the potential paths forward. Thank you.
Thank you for all the, to all the speakers. I think all the questions have been raised. Issues of interconnected worlds, thresholds, humility or arrogance, connect or alienate, if protein takes us further away from these connections or not. Floor is open. Yep. in the middle. I'm always very interested in the 3R application to research. Love how uh, it was then spun into application agriculture. Very perfect. Um, how do we rationalize society's uh, ranking of animals? So we apply the three R's, but I notice on my own animal care committee, because I do cats and dogs, I am critiqued to the nth degree. I want to take two blood samples and I have to justify my life away. But nobody asks about the 12 samples getting taken from the mouse. And that mouse is no more sentient or no less sentient than the cats and dogs I work with. So can, can you kind of help me rationalize that? Because I think that's also why we're in a beef debate and we're not as much in a chicken or fish debate. They don't look like us. Okay, well, I'll, I'll go first. That's okay? Okay. Uh, great question. I, I'm very sympathetic. Uh, I mean, one of my friends is a mouse researcher in Stanford, to be clapping as you ask that question. Um, I mean, if you know the history of the legislation on this, so, so, you know, the United Kingdom was the first to bring in anti-cruelty laws in the 1870s. Um, they were focused in on the charismatic animals like horses and dogs and cats. Um, that's always been at the forefront because those are the animals that are most closest to us. Um, uh, mice tend to be associated with past species. So I think this is, this is a social problem. It's not a, it's not a reflective ethical position. Um, and so what you're seeing there is a problem of social intersection with ethics. And, and as you say, a rationalization, that's not a morally justified view, it's a rationalized view. And for, for philosophers, particularly in ethics, rationalizing something's not a compliment. Uh, justifying is what we're after. Um, and so um, you're right, and it shouldn't be that way. And so the mouse is no less due attention when you're actually taking blood than a cat or a dog. So if you want me to come talk to your animal care committee, I am just happy to do that. <laughs> so I, is that on? Okay. Yeah, so um, I too uh, completely understand the um, uh, dichotomy that you're talking about. Um, and in fact, there have been uh, studies done that have looked at public's um, favorability towards uh, doing research on various different species in cats and dogs and non-human primates always come out um, to be of greater concern than uh, with mice and rats uh, towards the bottom of the spectrum and fish. Um, even though those animals, by the way, are being used at far, far greater numbers on a different scale, really. And so um, I, I totally see what you're saying, and I, I'm not sure I can respond with anything other than I think that we need to start with um, bringing pe people have affinities and um, interactions with certain species they can see that and maybe working on extending that view of, of these animals not being different even especially if we're talking about just the mammals. Um, Tovar you mentioned um, 
uh, oh, I just lost my train of thought. Um, you were mentioning um, about how different species, oh, no. <laughs> I lost what you were talking about. It'll come back to me in a minute. Uh, but, but I think we need to think um, about expanding that circle of compassion and um, just starting where we are and, um, and having more reflection about what we're doing um, uh, with the animals that we care first about, that society cares most about, and then um, moving from there is is the way that I can imagine it happening. And it has to happen on an individual level, as the other thing I would say. People who have animals as companions can more easily make those transitions to other species. And so that's what you were saying. You were talking about our connection to um, biodiversity or, or, to, or to the other animals in our environment, in our world. And I, I truly understand what you mean about the loss of that connection as, uh, you know, why that connection is so important. Uh, is so that we can develop more compassion towards um, all of the animals in our in our world, uh, and so how do we generate systems in this world that don't prevent humans from being able to um, consider animals more, but rather like we don't want to isolate ourselves. Mm -hmm. yeah. oh, well, thanks for the eloquence. We have a challenge before us to try and answer the question about feeding the world sustainably. And protein was a bit of the lens, but it could be broader. So I, I'd like to come back to Tovar's question for everyone. And um, how might we shape planetary health, human and animal health, in a way that creates well-being for all and addresses this question of future food? So I, I wasn't hearing a lot of it. I, I heard big questions and beautiful words. But if we could get to some of your insights, because I know there's questions raised, but I'm sure there's answers lingering also from everyone. So, you know, I, I don't have a lot of answers on that. I mean, I'm not a, you know, a policy expert or, a, you know, specialist in, in agricultural supply chains or, or any of these things. Um, the answer that I can give um, is, is, is twofold. One is, I think it's key to find ways to use, whether it's narrative or policy, to infuse some of these questions and values into our decision-making structures. I mean, if policy is not designed with these values in mind, then it's never going to reflect them. So whether that's through the political process or through social movements that have, you know, a, a real powerful narrative that can start to infuse some of these questions and values into the process, I mean, there's very elaborate you know, economic and political processes that create these systems, right? These global and national and, and international systems. We need to find a way to get some of these values and questions into that process, you know? Um, and then the other, that, that's sort of the global answer. The, 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 the small answer is that, and, and this goes back to something I think that, that Hugo said this morning, um, that 
there are lots of local food systems too. It's not just these giant national and multinational systems, right? There's also lots of local food systems. And in those places, I think we can find really valuable models to you know, encourage and support. And I think change is maybe more accessible at that scale uh, where, where it's needed. Just to jump in, it's a lovely, lovely question. So, because um, I, I work in bioethics, I have to work with with issues of policy. So here's here's some uh, policy responses. We need to have more meetings like this. We need to have larger rooms. We need to have more people. So public discourse is part of the part of the way to move forward. We gotta actually do this together because it's about coexistence on a shared planet. And no one gets to actually lay claim to that territory except us all. But that doesn't just include humans. Um, secondly, we have to start rethinking moral certitude. Um, there's a lot of certainty around the splitting of humans and non-humans that shouldn't be there. When you talk to biologists about this, I just had a friend talk to this friend of mine who's at Stanford as a mouse researcher, wanted me to remind people there's no such thing as species in biology. It's a heuristic for breeding populations. What are you thinking when you split human and non-human? What are you doing when you do that? He describes it as biology 101. No biologist thinks species are real. So when you favor humans, what are you doing when you favor humans? That's the second thing. Third thing, and this comes out of feminism and, and critical, critical reflection and things like warism, and it also comes out of my work in bioethics and pandemic ethics, is you've always got to think about the world that's after what you're making a decision about. So when you're thinking about war, what kind of world do you want after the war? That'll tell you something about how you fight it. What do, you, what do you want as a, as a society after you actually put a pandemic plan into action to respond to a public health threat like a lethal pandemic? Do you want to have a society that doesn't trust their hospitals? Do you want to have a society that doesn't trust their healthcare workers? Because that'll tell you how they deal with a pandemic. What do we want to do here? Well, we're losing this planet and we're losing this planet at increasing speed. What do we want to do now to make sure that the planet we create is one we want to live in and one we want our grandchildren to live in? And that those are the three things I would say for, for policymakers. Hi, um, I have a couple questions. One is, um, I question, is sentience really the best marker as to whether or not a life is worth keeping alive or, or killing? Um, when we look at crop agriculture, we look at you know the tilling of the soil, the annihilation of an entire ecosystem. We're losing our bee populations with chemical ag, and I just wonder, um, you know, when we think about least harm, um, and if if a, a mouse is the same value of life as a cow that can produce 500 pounds of of meat. Um, maybe according to the principle of least harm than a large ruminant raised on grass in an ecosystem that was never disturbed could be uh, less harm than a completely plant-based diet. I just want to get your opinions on that. There's an agricultural researcher named uh, Stephen Davis. Um, and he's... Oh, okay. <laughs> Anything more? Uh, <laughs> okay, so Davis's argument, for those who don't know, is essentially claiming that um, if you took uh, a given area of land and um, you grazed ruminants on that land, um, 
um, what would happen? Um, the ruminants would die and they would supply a whole bunch of food. If, on the other hand, you used half that land to graze ruminants and half that land to graze, uh, sorry, to grow crops for human consumption, what would happen? Half as many ruminants would die, um, but um, a whole bunch of field animals would die as well, more than the ruminants who could have grazed that land. And if you used that land to um, all of that land to um, produce crops for human consumption, what would happen? A whole bunch of field animals would die, um, and the um, nutritional value of what was grown in that land would be less than what was grown if there were ruminants there. So he argues for, using the least harm principle, this idea that um, if you take the least harm principle seriously, you will uh, do the least harm by having a diet that includes some uh, ruminant uh, some ruminants as part of that diet. I can give you I can give you the uncomfortable response. So let me give you the uncomfortable response. Um, uh, uncomfortable for me, but hopefully for more, because this is what philosophers do is disrupt. Um, I work in disability studies as well as uh, animal stuff. Here's a way to disrupt it. The reason why sentience came in as a criterion was because not all humans are similarly sentient. Not all humans are similarly cognitive. Not all humans are similarly metacognitive. And metacognition was what we tended to favor in ethics, and it still is. People will talk about self-awareness and self-consciousness. That's a worry for those of us who work in disability uh, ethics and disability studies, because it favors the able-bodied. Now take out the human and run your argument. So what would you really want to live in a world where we move away from sentience as the fundamental bedrock and then talk about social value or ecological value and then look at the whole human population and make the choices. Because if you're not, you're not working with a rational moral space. And so that's the uncomfortable spot, that's fine. And you know, as ethicists, we'll point out the options. We're not gonna tell you what's right and wrong and what you have to do, but you gotta know what you're doing. And if you take away sentience, you're taking away the bedrock of what allowed disability studies to go no more when it comes to abusing folks who are differently abled in our human communities. Remember, there's no such thing as species. And so when we're doing this, you gotta do it consistently if you're gonna be rational. And if you're not rational, or if you're not doing it rationally, you're not talking about objective ethics because that's not consistent with an objective ethics. And if we're not doing objective ethics, why are we doing it at all? And so if you're doing that, look at the human population and tell me which ones you wanna save and which ones you don't. And if you're not willing to do that, don't do it elsewhere. That's the uncomfortable. I'll just make a, a quick response, if you don't mind. Um, I have this tendency to use the word sentient in the non-scientific way, so I actually do include um, insects and, uh, well, pollinators um, who are insects <laughs> and other creatures within that. And I think the one thing I would I would say is um, the the um, comparison that you were making or that you were posing. Uh, perhaps is not the more problematic one for me. A system of agriculture that like literally systematizes harm, egregious suffering to animals is not one that can be compared to small-scale agriculture. Uh, there is a difference in the level of harm that we're, that we're creating in those, when we compare those two systems. Um, and so if we're going to talk about a whole different, more ecologically friendly, holistic system of agriculture that takes into account all of the ecosystem 
uh, needs and services and um, and uh, recognizes the health of the of the planet that's needed to create that um, then already we're in a different sphere than than the kind of agriculture that is what most of our Western countries are are based on Uh, hi everyone. Um, you know what? I'm not. I'm not going to use this. All right. Um, hi everyone. Uh, thank you for the hosts and the panelists for putting together this ex excellent session. And uh, it's an honor to be here. My name is Seth Itzcan. I'm with an organization called Soil for Climate, and um, I'll be speaking tomorrow afternoon, tomorrow morning. So, plug, please come back tomorrow and bring friends with you um, to continue this great talk. And um, I'm just to give a. Um, sort of a, a prelude, I will be advocating for much more animal agriculture, two, three times as much as we have now. And I will be saying that is essential for climate mitigation because the issues that matter is the number 410, which is the parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere right now. And if that number doesn't become 280 in our lifetimes, nothing matters. All this talk about ethics and what they eat, whatever, it doesn't matter. This is the tidal wave which is gonna wipe out everyone and everyone you love and everyone you believe in and every future that you think you're going to have is going to get wiped away if the CO2 doesn't get down to 280 and it got, doesn't get down to 280 until all the grasslands of the world are restored. And so the entire drive over here from Boston was wheat, 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 and that should all be tall grass prairie and it should be all be ruminants. So we, we need to double or triple the amount of ruminants on the planet and we need to be supporting grass-fed, grass-finished grazing in order to pull down 300 gigatons of atmospheric CO2 in our lifetimes. That's the objective, that's it. Everything else is just academic la-la. You wanna save the world, that's what we have to do, and I'll be talking about it tomorrow, thank you. Can I just make one quick comment, which is um, great to have ruminants grazing, but why do we need to eat them? Just wondering. Also, just to, just to jump in for that. You don't have to eat them, the question is, do you want this world to spiral into war right. Oh, absolutely. Right. Agree. Yeah, we can live on the air. You know, some aliens came down and gave us all little packs and we could just plug in. Fine. But if you want to stop this planet from spiraling into runaway warming, we need to massively increase the amount of ruminants on the planet, uh, restoring grasslands and pulling CO2, regardless of the planet. And I, th I think you're, you're right, by the way, about pulling the carbon dioxide out, but ethics is not la la land. And so if we're actually, we need to think about the world we create afterwards. Ethics is not optional. And so if you make ethics optional, I don't want to live in your world. I don't care if you save the planet. And so uh, saving the planet is like having a long life. It matters how we do it. And it matters about the planet we live on. So sorry. I mean, yeah, saving a planet's important. Having a long life's important, but quality matters too. And so does ethics. It's not la la land. And so if you do it immorally, I'm not interested. Thanks for that comment, because I got to the real privilege of spending time with the First Nations community, and I would never um, sit here speaking on their behalf. But at a conference I attended, when they were considering how to work with the governments in utilizing their plant medicines, there was, I was the only non-native person at this conference. It went on for days, and after three days, 
a young man at the back of the room put up his hand and he said he has an answer which hasn't been considered all day long. And he said, well, isn't the answer to ask the root people? Now, I'm a pretty traveled person, maybe not as some in this room, but we didn't have Google at the time, and I'm trying to figure out who these root people are. This is the spiritual ethics. We've really been talking about physical ethics. The root people are the plants. And he was saying, why are humans deciding what we should do with the plants? If we pray, we can act the plants how they want to be treated. So that's just some reflection in, in that consideration that, that is very physical. There's the physical ethics of things, and then what, what are the spiritual ethics? If we harm animals and we eat that meat, is there impact on our own sp spirituality or, or our own being that may, may manifest, somatize in, in a physical way? And thank you for reminding me why I love philosophers so much, because at the same time, I understand exactly what you're saying and have no idea. <laughs> Can I just add to that about the spirituality? I undergraduate, my undergraduate major was in religious studies, so I specialized in South Asian religious traditions and philosophies. If we were having a religious studies workshop on this, this would be a very different discussion. The ontology and framework of ethics in Indian philosophies, among the many Buddhisms, Hinduisms, and in Jainism, would take us in a very different direction than what we're taking here. Well, maybe I'll jump in with a question there. There was a, some discussion in the first panel, and we'll probably be hearing more about it, about regenerative agriculture. And I'm wondering if you can touch a little bit more about how that might be a solution uh, along the line of uh, Kathleen's question, um, to think about how we can have a, have a system of agri-food production that uh, returns, that, that engages producers in a more wholeful way, with wholesome way, with, with the, the, the beings that they're working with, plant, insect, uh, mammalian, whatever it may be, in a more fruitful way, and whether that's a, a potential solution for you, as far as you're concerned. I think it is, and insofar as we're concerned about harm production, that's one way we can move forward in food production through our agricultural practices, um, through regenerative agriculture, by trying to do agriculture, animal agriculture, and plant agriculture in such a way that we're not trying to fight nature or compete with nature, but we're trying to cooperate with nature and do things like nature does. Um, by building soil health, by um, uh, taking advantage of um, the interplay between species and the benefits that um, different species and um, uh, plants can have on each other. So um, it seems like if our priority is harm reduction and one of, that's one of the things we want to do, then that's one way to do it. All right, folks, any other questions from the audience? We can also have the, 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 the panelists, uh, if they have any things to add. For, for um, uh, your first name. Tovar. Tovar. 
you give it to her. Uh, thanks for the, thanks for the, I really enjoyed this panel. I, I, I was just reading one of Donald's chapters last night, which is basically on this argument. It's a lovely argument. Thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, I loved your discussion of hunting. I have a friend who's uh, Mi'kmaq. Uh, Mi'kmaq in, in Dalhousie is a faculty member in so it's a, it's a, oh, it's a faculty. It's, it's a department of uh, uh, social anthropology and social sciences. Um, uh, but she's also a vegan. And so she talks to fellow Mi'kmaq about uh, animal stuff. And one of the things that's interesting about hunting versus agriculture is uh, this is a lovely debate because there is something about treating a whole animal as an animal in their space when you hunt them responsibly. That's not true of far, far too much uh, agriculture, not the extensive stuff that folks are talking about here. That's a different discussion. But when you talk about most agriculture, most agriculture is not that. Most, most of the meat that we're, we're actually exposed to is factory farm meat, right? And so the hunting stuff uh, brings in a very, very different conversation. When you're actually engaging an animal uh, where they've had a chance to get to an adulthood, where they have a chance to escape, where they've actually been enriched by the physical and social environments in ways that we cannot replicate. And this is true in zoo ethics. And one of the conversations in zoo ethics is the first thing to note is captivity is generally harmful. And the best we can do is give them a life worth living. And that's hard, depending on the animal, depending on how social they are and depending how large the animal is. And what's nice about hunting is you engage an animal in a way that is much, much, much more respectful than is true of intensified industrial agriculture. And so I just wanted to, to say that it's a, it's a very moving way of shifting focus. Yeah, I'll, I'll say that it, you know, it depends on, it depends on the hunter and how the hunting happens and a bunch of different things. Um, what you remind me of is a line from a book by a, a guy named Bob Kimber, who uh, lives over in Maine, I think it's called The Education of a Hunter-Gardener, I believe. Um, I forget the, the main title of it off the top of my head. Uh, but he, he says that, uh, he's talking about the difference between raising an animal and killing it, which he's done, and hunting an animal. And he, he says, when you take the life of an animal that you've raised, you're exercising your property rights. And when you take the life of an animal that you've hunted, you're receiving a gift. Now, you can debate whether that's the right language for it, but there's a fundamentally different sort of relationship that is there. Hi, thanks for a great uh, panel and uh, a great day, too. My name's Sarah Martin. I'm at, uh, in the Department of Political Science at Memorial University in Newfoundland in Labrador. Um, the, my question for the panel, I was really provoked by this idea of what's next. And so I think we can all agree, well, perhaps, um, the folks on the stage, I think, might agree that uh, industrial agriculture is presently practiced is a problem. Um, and uh, so what's next? What's the, what does the world look like to you folks if we set that aside? Um, what's after? What's after? industrial animal agriculture. In terms of what we would hope to see happen? <laughs> More extensive animal agriculture that does the sorts of things that small-scale producers do. 
I, 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 in my research ethics, I, I have been motivated by chimpanzee stuff. So my dissertation was on chimpanzee knowledge and chimpanzee epistemology. So I have them in mind when I say this. I'm worried about species extinction on this planet. I don't, I don't want to see a world without chimpanzees in it. I don't want to see a world uh, without dolphins in it. I don't want to see a world without orcas in it. And so, uh, and it's not just a biodiversity claim, though I'm not saying that's a, that's a bad value. I'm just saying it's, that's not a claim about that. This is about individuals with whom we coexist, who are beings in this world with preferences and have no less due for their existence and coexistence on this planet than us. And so I want to make sure that as we rethink our place on this planet, we do it with greater humility. We do it with a more committed response to understanding those with whom we share this planet. That we do it painfully and we recognize when our conflicts of interest because we have skin in this game, sometimes literally because they're our property, uh, but we have skin in this game and we've got to be more honest about what's going on. I mean, this is a lesson coming out of evolutionary psychology. Evolutionary psychology is fine. Now evolutionary psychology is bad science. And the reason why it's bad science is too many people are self-interested as they grind their axes in that area of so-called science. And so we need to be very careful of conflicts of interest in this room as we talk about agriculture, as we talk about raising them, particularly if we make a living from it, because these are alarm bells for anyone working in ethics. I mean, this is, this is ethics 101. And so we want to we wanna make sure that as we move forward, we re-envision how we coexist. I don't know if anyone's seen that paper that came out in April of this year on biosphere and biomass on the planet. Something like 96% of all mammals on this planet are either humans or the animals we eat. Since domestication, about 80% of land animals have been wiped out. In the oceans, 85% of species, they're gone. Since domestication, that's not, in, that's not the 1750s, that's since domestication. We've turned this planet into a farm. So how do we want to move forward? I don't want it to be a farm. It wasn't a farm when we got here. And I think we should leave the planet in better shape than we found it. And that, that, there's two things that I teach my students. Don't be an asshole and leave the planet in better shape than you found it. That's not, those, are, those, are two, those are two things. But those, those, are, those are two things that all philosophers, despite the fact that we disagree a lot, that's something we all agree on, but we can do it at the species level. As, as a species, as a group of individuals that live together as a population, don't be an asshole and leave the planet better than we found it. Well, because of us, it's a farm. So let's leave it better than we found it. Let's, let's make it not a farm. So what would that look like? Well, a lot less domesticated animals that we're raising for food. I'll just toss in here because you indirectly raised the question, you know, we have touched on this in various ways, but you know, the, the sheer fact of the global human population is so closely tied to these questions of how do we feed ourselves as a global human population, you know, and a rapidly expanding global human population is an ecological problem, it's an ethical problem, it's a big, big problem that we haven't really tackled here and probably, you know, won't on this panel obviously tackle in any depth, but it's, it's a major factor.
One more thing to add to the, um, well, why do we have to eat them uh, that you mentioned? Um, so if we, um, we agree that, that cattle on pasture can increase biodiversity and draw down carbon, they're beneficial, I think that um, how are we going to take care of them? How are we going to, they need to be culled in some way or else they're just going to overgraze and they'll all die. And so the question is, do the wolves get to eat them and not humans? Or do the farmers who are taking care of them actually um, have a sustainable lifestyle? And, and do we get to um, benefit from, you know, eating them as omnivores? So that's... I guess one of the things I was thinking comes back to what Andrew was saying, which is, and, and maybe others as well, um, but very much so about the fact that we've created um, a system on this planet that is, like you said, uh, fully a farm. But what about all of that biodiversity loss? What about all the species that used to graze and roam on, on this earth that we're now, or on the, the lands that we're now using for agriculture? Where did they go? Maybe they weren't native in, in every part of this country, but in other countries. So I guess my comment was coming from, we don't necessarily have to create a future where we are only maintaining a small number of farm species that then do all of the, and I'm not even sure if they could do, the um, ecological job that previously many species had been performing. Um, so for us to come in and think that we can manage a planet with a very small number, like first of all, that we know what that would even look like, that we could even take that on. Secondly, that we could do it with such little scope of, um, you, know, uh, you know, that our farming could take care of all of these things is a little bit simplistic to me. So, um, and then thirdly, there's just personal, uh, the personal aspect of, of the discussion hasn't really come up as much as I've been hearing, uh, personally, I've been, sort of filtering every one of these panels that we've had this morning, which has been, which have been great, uh, with my own personal perspective and, you know, our own decisions about what we do are, can be very dif different one from the other. So I may not want to um, partake in, in eating animals, even though uh, on, a, on a policy level, some country says that it's good to eat X number of um, grams of animal protein per day or something. Um, that's not necessarily going to be the choice that I make. My health might not even allow for that. You know, we're all individuals. We all have our different ethical perspectives and decisions to be made that we can live with and that also help us frame and live and um, uh, manifest our, our values. And if we try and, and achieve um, values that are more compassionate, and that take into account more of um, the factors that we all talked about that currently we talked about as harms, but if we looked at it from how can we um, improve those things, uh, I, think, I think that would be, I think each individual has an opportunity to contribute. So I'm not sure if I'm really answering your question, but those were some reflections to it. Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Carl Tiedemann. I am uh, with Soil for Climate. Um, I would like to suggest that all of us in the room, as we think about the future world that we want, all want a world in which the extinction crisis is reversed, that wildlife can return in abundance the way it was for hundreds of thousands of years before humans came on the scene. Um, 
To that end, I would like to suggest there's also confusion about how ecology works in the room. Um, there's a common misbelief that if we leave land alone, then the grasses will come back, the animals will come back, nature will operate on its own, as it always has. Um, that's not true for most of the world. It's only environments like New England or Western Europe that get rainfall periodically. There's always moisture in the air or island states or so on. These areas will regenerate on their own. If you have land that's dead or dying, as Arizona, large parts of Australia, large parts of Africa, the only way the land will come back, the only way the health will be restored, that we can protect the giraffes and the elephant and the lion and the populations of all the other animals that we care about, is to restore the health of the soil. Wild herds around the world have been extirpated, completely wiped out. You know, in North America, up to 60 million bison, gone. The only animals that we have left to do the job, thankfully, are the domesticated livestock. Now, no one has suggested that this should be a world filled with cattle. What we're suggesting is, let's use the animals we have. The, the only tool that we have to reverse a biological problem is a biological solution. There's no machine that can go out and begin restoring the ecosystems that we all dream of in, in the wetlands that we want to see come back. It's going to be animals that do it for us. So to bring back the elephant population, it's going to take cows. You know, how many people in the room know that? I suspect very few. As my colleague said, we've got to get 300 billion tons of carbon out of the air, so we need to restore all ecosystems. Whether or not people eat meat, I don't, I don't care. But we've, we need to get the animals back on the land. Thank you. Thanks. I, I mean, here's my jump in for that. I mean, this goes back to Talika's point. I mean, we still need to think about what that means. I mean, that's, that's not an answer to the further. I see you nodding. I mean, we still need to think about what that means for coexistence because it's fine to have the ruminants roaming, but it doesn't mean that we do anything other than maybe hunt them, right? Um, this becomes a very, we need to think more rationally. We need to think more self-critically. We need to do it with more, humili more hum uh, humility, less moral certitude, a real worry that we stack the books in our favor all the time and call it ethics. Because that's not ethics. That's the difference between rationalizing something and justifying it. We can rationalize a lot. That doesn't get us closer to ethics. That just helps us sleep at night. Um, and we need to we need to resist moral certitude, rethink how we move forward as a planet, make it rational as we design it and redesign the coexistence. But we've got to be much, much, much more self-reflective about the games we play when we rationalize versus justify. I want to jump in there, but I, but I did see that there was a question before. Uh, just uh, very briefly, because I know we're kind of running out of time, but I'm a little surprised by this all-cow solution to all the world's problems. I mean, last time I checked, bison still existed. And, uh, you know, and so I kind of want to throw it back to you guys. Realistically, what do you think is standing in the way of us retreating somewhat and maybe stepping back, turning over 20, 30% of the continent, say, to bison, I mean, as a solution. What are, what are the kind of, I like this idea of how we stack the deck. And I just kind of wonder if you'd comment on that. Why is rewilding not more a part of the converse, conversation? <laughs> 
you're echoing Mark Beckhoff here. I, I mean, I think, I mean, I'm chums with Mark. Uh, I think uh, rewilding's great. Um, I mean, I think we need to have more meetings like this. I mean, I'm a, I'm a philosopher. I'm an ethicist. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I can't claim to be a scientist. And so we need to have more rooms like this. We, I mean, this is why what Ryan and Shannon has done is super great. We need to have more of these. We need to have bigger rooms. We need to have more people. We need to actually really challenge ourselves to think outside boxes. I mean, Sue Sherwin and Dale Jameson are the first to say, listen, what got us here was poor values, poor frameworks. We need to, we have very tribal ethics still. We need to get beyond tribalism or we don't get to leave this planet. Right, and so I think I think we just need to have more of a more of an honest discussion, and folks should be pushing us around and giving us a hard time and giving each other a hard time, and uh, making sure that we actually think much more painfully about the rhetoric we use, the frameworks we use, because we keep coming back to us. Right, I mean, this made sense when we were the we thought we were the center of the physical universe. That that's the medieval period, by the way. Since then, because we're not the center of the universe, we're also not the center of the moral universe. That made sense when it was theology. That made sense when we thought we were in the divine image. I'm an atheist. I don't think we're in the divine image. I know human history. I know we're not in the divine image. But it made sense to think that we were the center of the moral universe when we were the center of the physical universe. We're not. And if you want to have a secular ethic, stop treating us like theology. Please stop treating this like theology. Yeah, I think this is, you know, rewilding is not my area of expertise. Um, fair warning. Um, but when you raise that question, what I immediately think of is, okay, how would that happen? You know, where's the social and political will to do that? That's the first huge barrier. You know, which particular land mass, whose, whose land are we going to do that with? Is it yours? Is it mine? Somebody, you know, where is that going to come from? And I think as sort of a microcosm of that, I think of all the examples both here in North America and elsewhere around the world where areas have been set aside for conservation or for national parks. And what that involved was evicting all of the people who were living there in those places, whether it was, you know, rural white folks in the Appalachians or, you know, native folks in <clears throat> national parks in the West or other, you know, and it happens elsewhere in the world too. <clears throat> uh, so there's just huge political and social resistance and, and, and problems that arise when we, when we do that, even though I, in a philosophical and ecological sense, I, I love the idea of rewilding, but if we're talking about large land areas, I think we, we have some problems. Um, quick follow-up. Uh, just to be clear, I was talking about rewilding. And the reason we can't use bison, although bison are being used, I got to tour a bison ranch in Colorado a couple of years ago, is the numbers. Uh, we only have about 500,000 bison, about 1% of what their estimated original population was. So that's, that's the reason why they have a small role to play compared to cattle, which because they process so much grass and produce so much manure are far more effective. Both sheep and cows are also being used, but because of their much smaller animal size to a much lesser extent. Uh, there's another comment here, but I'm just gonna go first to someone who hasn't spoken yet. How are we doing for time, Julie? Do we have... Oh, <laughs> <laughs> way, way over, okay. 